0: They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights. Our
1: story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of America. Liberty. Ideas spread. They can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government.
0: Hello and welcome to episode four of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. My name is Aaron Keith Harris. I'm your host, and we have a great show for you today. Scott Horton is my guest. I know I've promised the last couple of episodes that Joshua Smith. Uh, Our endorsed candidate for uh, chairman of the Libertarian National Committee was going to be my guest. Uh, We've had some problems. uh, The last uh, time we were scheduled to record, he was sick. I think his voice was shot, and uh, so uh, I had been talking to Scott Horton. Scott had told me a while ago uh, that he'd love to be on the show, so I was able to, to slot him in. So that's why we have Scott for you this week. Uh, If everything goes correctly, uh, according to plan, we will have Joshua on, um, hopefully, maybe as soon as uh, this Friday. Uh, It's Monday, March 9th as I'm recording this, and if we record on Wednesday, we might have it up, uh, I might have it up very soon. Let me put a plug in for Josh, too. Josh has been working very, very hard. He's been traveling all over the country for the last several months. He's never really stopped uh, in one way since uh, 2018 and he's been just a great part of the Mises caucus. He goes around talking to libertarians and as you know, that can sometimes get kind of tiring because some of us are are hard to deal with. And uh Josh does it with a good uh, uh a good spirit and he he takes a lot of punches and keeps going. And I know the travel's been really getting to him. I can give you the PayPal link to contribute to Josh's campaign. It's paypal.com slash paypalme2, and the 2 is the number, the numeral 2. So paypalme2 slash Joshua Smith Chair 2020, and the 2020 is, of course, 2020. So you can uh, help Josh out, uh, defray the cost of his airfare, hotels, meals while he's on the road, etc., and uh, include a, a note of uh, encouragement uh, to him on your donation too. I've I've been able to give him a little bit of money and um, I'm really proud of what he's doing. Let me tell you about one other thing before we get into the interview with Scott Horton and that's the Mises Pack Money Bomb. It's going to be on Saturday, March 28th. I think we're going to start at around 11 a.m. Eastern and it's going to be an all-day Facebook live event for people in our uh, Facebook Group the the Mises Caucus private Facebook group uh, will be streaming with several people, uh, including Scott Horton, Jacob Hornberger, Tom Woods, Dave Smith, maybe some more. I'm not sure. I think Josh is going to be there too. And what we're doing is a money bomb for Mises PAC, which it's a political action committee that the, we at the Mises caucus started so that we can fund candidates so that we can help, uh, jo- like we're helping Josh's campaign for libertarian party chair. And also so we can do initiatives and ballot measures on things like uh, uh, ending the war on drugs and uh, second amendment protections. We've had a little bit of success with that with decriminalized Denver uh, last year. We helped them, legalized psilocybin out there, and so we need a little more money. Uh, we're doing pretty well. We're trying to get up to 500 monthly contributors. Right now, I think we have about 320, 330, and some of these uh, people just give about $5 a month. Sometimes, I think we have a couple of people who are $100 or more, but you can contribute at whatever level is possible for you, and we'd really like for you to do that between now and and March 28th so that we can get up to that 500 contributor goal. I think we're bringing in about $5,100 a month out of that 330 or so contributors right now. We want to boost that to over 7,000 so we can fund more candidates this year and make the most of what we think is going to be a big year with uh, hopefully Jacob Hornberger at the top of the ticket. Now, in addition to all those great guests... We'll be giving out swag, some uh, Mises silver rounds, some t-shirts, maybe a couple other little things. But the big thing is uh, an AR-15. We are going to select at random uh, someone to win that. Uh, We had a poll in our Facebook group on the page about uh, whether we should give an AK or an AR, and I think the AR won out by about 57 to 43. So what do you need to do to be eligible to win the the AR-15 or the silver or the t-shirts, well, you got to go to lpmesiscaucus.com and sign up. There's basically a, a pop-up when you go there right now that will allow you to enter. Um, I think if you're already a contributor, you're already entered. Um, but if you are not yet and you want to just enter, go fill out that form, and then there's also a link for you to become a contributor. If you have any questions, I just I want you to message me on our Facebook page. I'm usually the guy who answers those uh, queries there. Um, I can help you out if you're having trouble getting signed up. So we'll keep reminding you about the money bomb. But we would really appreciate it if we could get as close to 500 as possible before that day, so that we can uh, uh, rack up as many as we can on that big day. So please, if you have time and can spare a little money. Uh, go over to lpmisescaucus.com slash donate and do so there. Now, most of you know Scott Horton from The Scott Horton Show, which you can see at scotthorton.org. He's also the managing editor of antiwar.com and the director and co-founder of the Libertarian Institute, along with Sheldon Richmond, a a really great uh, underrated uh, libertarian writer, and the late great Will Grigg. Uh, They founded that a few years ago. It's going strong. Uh, Pete Quinones is helping out over there now, and they're doing great work. But what Scott's known for is his just encyclopedic knowledge of American foreign policy, especially in the last 30 years or so, but really going back to uh, the post-World War II era and beyond. He's done more than 5,000 interviews for The Scott Horton Show And uh, he has all kinds of different people on there, reporters, uh, analysts, uh, other writers, um, all kinds of people from all over the spectrum, uh, people who have things to say uh, that are truthful about war and American foreign policy. And you have just a really wide range of people like Aaron Maté, who I think writes for The Nation, some other uh, left-wing type reporters, um, as well as people on the right, and people who aren't particularly ideological either, but they just have uh, something to say about, about war. So I highly recommend that you check out Scott Horton. If you haven't done so already, you've got plenty to catch up on with, I think 5,200 or so interviews by now. And uh, so we talk a little bit about why Scott decided to join the libertarian party and to team up with the Mises caucus this year. Uh, Jacob Hornberger is the big reason I heard, from scott horton Uh, he's the first person uh several months ago who told me that jacob might run i was excited because i knew jacob from way back and scott's really been uh behind jacob he's been advising him on foreign policy but i think he says in the interview that jacob basically already knows everything anyway but it's uh it's good to have scott on the team so scott will talk a little bit about that I also got his take on the recent uh, peace deal in Afghanistan and a few other things. So we'll just jump right into it. My interview with Scott Horton. All right, Scott, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I, I was been talking to you a lot over the last year or so, and you were the first person who told me that Jacob Hornberger might run for president and uh, i had remembered jacob from way back in the 90s and was happy about that and and i'm happy about how his campaign is going so far um let's start by you telling me how you got why you decided to get involved with the lp now what's your history with the lp been uh if any and uh uh, why now uh with the with hornberger and, and this year
1: Sure. Well, so Michael Badnark was from Austin. And so, you know, I knew people who knew him and I was really just getting involved in the libertarian movement. And I knew some libertarian party people here in town and stuff. And so I had a job as his foreign policy advisor, which just meant I talked to him on the phone about what was going on with the wars and stuff like that. Um, So that was, you know, I messed around with the LP in that sense a little bit back then in 04. Um, But essentially... No, there's only so much time in the day and I didn't feel like it was a very effective use of my time. And and, you know, all the Roberts rules of order and sitting on committees and things like that is not exactly my cup of tea. I really just want to focus on my show and this kind of stuff and working for antiwar dot com. Um, but then, you know, and I've I've said this a couple of times before. I was a very unofficial uh, advisor to Gary Johnson as well. And I was asked by a friend. That, you know, I was connected with him um, and I had attempted to give him some advice on some things um, and some memos. Basically, I sent him some, memo. I talked to him on the phone a few times and sent him some memos about foreign policy subjects and stuff. Uh, and I felt this is no attack on him, never mind that, but just it seemed like, especially the year 2016 mm-hmm. was such an opportunity wasted. Yep. And that would if we had really had somebody up there who knew what time it was and wanted to fight about it. And, you know, like Ron Paul, but younger and more fighty, you know, and right. really willing to get out there and take it to Hillary and to Trump, who are the two weakest candidates in world history. It's just incredible. The opportunity there that was squandered, frankly. And so then the opposite of that is, hey, what if it had been perfect? You know, what, you know, what would be the very best thing? And um, so I did. And I think people already know this anyway. I was was, I was a bit public about it. I was trying to recruit Tom Woods to do it because, frankly, he's the most charismatic one of us. Uh, And and I've seen him rock a huge crowd before. No problem. You know, I think he's just the man for the job. Um, But he just frankly could not do it. And I told him, if you don't want to do it, I'm going to keep after you. But if you tell me that you can't do it, then I'll leave you alone, man. You know. And he said I can't, which is understandable. He's got a big family and all this stuff. So, um, and then Jacob Hornberger's next on the list of you know best libertarians who fit the bill for you know essentially the ironic the Ron Paul uh, ironic thing of the square personality, the conservative and decent, no bad words type of a persona, mixed with these very radical individualist politics. And, and, you know, in a way that is surprising and interesting to people who don't understand it, and they're learning about it for the first time, that, you know, here are people who are really hardcore about gold, but they're also really hardcore about letting the underclass out of prison, Yep. you know, and they're really hardcore about stopping the war on Yemen. And there's common themes here about, you know, what it is that's important to us here. It might sound kind of weird and like a, a, a mixed bag to someone who's brand new, but you stick around for a minute and you find out yeah, about non-aggression and, and how this all makes sense from a libertarian point of view. And I think, you know, Jacob Hornberg essentially has um, the just the perfect philosophy. Um, you know, there's an article by Murray Rothbard. It's pretty famous. It's called Do You Hate the State? And in that article, he says uh, he prefers a radical minarchist to a conservative anarchist. He's attacking an author or criticizing a book um, that was written that was essentially a utilitarian case for anarchism. And how
0: David Friedman's, right? Machinery of Freedom, I think.
1: Exactly. There. So. I didn't want to name it because I've never read it. I don't know. But anyway, yes, Milton Friedman's son's book. And it's about how, no, really, the free market will take care of it. You really could have anarcho-capitalism essentially would work. You don't need to socialize even your security services, uh, your welfare services or anything else. You know, it'll be okay. So Rothbard said, well, that's not good enough. Rothbard says, listen, the reason that we're libertarians is because we love freedom and we hate injustice. And we are here to fight for what is right against what is not right. And that is what we're here for. And so um, it's not good enough to say that liberty could work. It's that we won't settle for less. Damn it. That's the deal. And then he says, so give me a radical minarchist who believes in the Constitution and George Washington and a limited republic, um, but who can't stand all the things that limited republic is doing all day and is willing to fight for the most minimal state that has as its sole purpose protecting liberty and as close as you can get to that under a system of statism and good enough as long as they're willing to fight with me all the way you know 90 percent of the way to where i'm going and so what's funny honestly uh aaron is that i would always get confused and forget whether rothbard mentioned jacob hornberger in that article Or whether that was just my imagination, because that was who I always thought of when I read that. And of course, it's the latter. It's Hornberger's not in the article, but that's who I always thought of is the radical minarchist. And if you listen to Hornberger, essentially his complaint is on whatever subject it is he's talking about that that's not right. And look at what this, you know, group of people with power are doing to these other people. And it ain't fair. And that's essentially the theme of every article he writes every single day. So here's a guy who, um, you know, I'm for even less government than him. And yet here he, he's next to me fighting 100% on all the most important issues and in all the most important ways, you know, 95% of the way to where I'm going anyway. And so I could totally take it. And we're talking about an LP nomination. So. Accepting the Constitution as your premise makes sense there. This is the USA and it is, you know, uh, ostensibly still the law of the land and all this kind of thing. So that's all fine. And um, but anyway, so uh, but now seriously on on the non-aggression principle and on real libertarian theory. He's solid. I mean, he really is a very good libertarian up to that point of minarchy. Of course, the anarchists will quibble, of course. Well, it's not just a quibble, but you know what I mean. They'll they'll disagree. But all the way up till there, his libertarian theory is perfectly sound. Um, uh, And and not just that, but his education in terms of economics and history and, you know, revisionist history of the last. Uh, certainly since World War II is usually where he starts. He talks about the creation of the national security state after World War II and this kind of thing. And he has, a, a, you know, a very um, anti-government take on essentially everything they've done since then. And and he really knows, you know, uh, he knows the subject matter. You go over the, the, the details of what happened and when he knows all the stuff. And then not only that, but I think he's got the right policy prescriptions too. And I think that when he says... You know, when I'm president, I'm going to do this, this and this, and I'm going to stop doing this, this and this. I think he states it well. And I think he's just the right guy to explain that, as Ron Paul says, liberty works. David Friedman is right. You know, let's get a radical minarchist out there to show the principled case that freedom really does work. And so, um I think Hornberger brings all of that stuff together. And I think that, you know, and especially in this time, you think about all those, you know, stars aligning, I guess, as they say, where we have Donald Trump. I mean, no matter what you think about him, pro or con or any other thing, I mean, the guy is a show. He is the the hit movie of the summer, no matter what. Right. The world the, uh, in American politics right now, the world revolves around this guy's every burp. It's completely ridiculous. It's completely out of proportion to his actual power, even in the American superpower. Um, but um, and then the Democrats, whether it's Biden or Sanders or whatever they try to come up with over there, I don't know what they think they're going to do. Um, But they are going to be throwing everything they've got at it. And you can expect, you know, all the fake controversies over Russia to, you know, attempt to be re-injected in the thing and everything. And I just figure, you know what, like, what if we could figure out how to catapult a really great libertarian right into the center of that and make them have to deal with what we think and what we have to say and – because we're libertarians and we're great on everything and because Hornberger is good on everything. And that means he's in the perfect position to attack Trump from the right and Sanders or Biden from the left. And in all the most ironic ways and compare them to each other, you know, in funny ways and give them left handed compliments and, and all of these kinds of things in a way that, geez, at least Biden isn't as bad as Trump on this. And at least, but you know, whatever, all these kinds of avenues that are open for showing people what's really going on around here and why it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way at all. It could be totally different. And and you don't need a socialist revolution. You just need freedom that Americans already believe in. They think. They just haven't had it on the menu, of, of, you know, one of their choices. It's always move further left or further right. But uh, what about if liberty was the compromise in the middle instead of the horrible, evil, so-called moderates like, well, Hillary Clinton and George W. Bush, um, the, the uh, liberal Republicans and the conservative Democrats, the John McCains of the world. What if it was the libertarians who, instead of being for everything, are against everything? And what if that was the compromise position in the middle? That hey, well, instead of everybody gets ten billion dollars for their project, nobody gets ten billion dollars, <laughs> and we, you know, wind this whole thing down, wither this state away, as the commies say, you know.
0: I think that's actually uh, something that's attainable. Um, passing off or marketing ourselves as the moderates, um, and I've seen it firsthand because I've spoken to uh, high schools here in Ohio uh, for the Libertarian mm-hmm. Party. And one high school in particular, I've been there like five or six times. And every time, every semester, I get she for the teacher forwards me some of the the comments from the students. And the first time I went in, like one of the first comments I got was like, oh, he's really sensible and moderate. And when I was in there giving basically the Rothbardian message, but Mm -hmm. it came across to these kids as, hey, the you know what Gary Johnson said and got tripped up on a lot best of the right best of the left, but we're, we're actually good on the stuff the right says they're good on, but they're not. And we're good on the stuff. The left says they're good on and not too. And with Jacob, uh, unlike Gary Johnson, who I don't hate as much as a a lot of uh, libertarians do. And I'm an AnCap, Um, I think Gary's instincts were always mostly right but he would occasionally get that deer in the headlights thing when he got a tough question, like bake the cake and stuff like that. And Jacob, uh, he doesn't get that. He, he doesn't back down.
1: Yeah. Well, and listen, I mean, what we're talking about here too, is who's the best guy to nominate for the LP uh, general election campaign. And then we're talking about not just running against Sanders or Biden or Don and or Donald Trump here, but we're talking about, introducing libertarianism to the American people who, for intents and purposes, none of them have ever heard of us or what we believe in at all. If they have heard of us, they think, well, they're just greedy or they just smoke pot or they just, is that the same thing as the librarian party or what? The, it doesn't mean anything to them, right? This is the first time any of them ever get to hear this stuff. And so you know, we'd be fools to say we're going to upend the whole two party system in America, replace one or the other of them or any of these kinds of things. But um, we're definitely in a position essentially to lead the American people, not and and not to insist that they have to become libertarians and join the libertarian party necessarily, but essentially set the agenda for them. That if I mean, after all, look at how poor their leadership is right? That, you know, what the left movement in America should prioritize are, hey, the things that they agree with us about, the things that they are best on, uh, such as, you know, freeing people who aren't guilty of actual crimes, but merely offenses against the state and its edicts for starters. Um, you know, deregulation of, of entry into business as all the Richmond has written such great stuff about. And, um, you know, all these things where uh, there are well, a few things and, and leftists overall, never mind the Democratic Party, but, but progressive activists and liberals and leftists out in the world, they don't believe in imperialism and all of this stuff. You know, they get dragged along by Democratic Party leadership a lot of times, but there's a lot of common ground that we share with them. So we just have to remind them that they're already right about stuff. They're already good. All we're telling them is that they're right. But. We think that they ought to prioritize the same things that we do. And then the same thing with right wingers, too. And it's fair enough to go ahead and put words in everybody's mouth. The American people led by the libertarians are sick and tired of the world empire. It's not the role of the middle part of North America to try to dominate the rest of the planet Earth. The whole project is stupid and bankrupt and we don't want it and we're done. You don't have to become a libertarian to think that. You just have to agree with us. All you have to do is hear Jacob Hornberger talk sense. That doesn't have to be this way. And you can keep your identity. You can still be a conservative, you can still be a liberal, you can still be from the north or the south or the east or the west or whatever your problem is. And you can just say, hey, you know what? It's time to go ahead and move on from the long war that these guys insist on waging. This Hornberger guy makes sense. And then you know what? If we can do a good enough job of leading enough people to essentially adopt our principles overall, our priorities overall, where their principles overlap with ours and agree with us, then we can move the margin. We can make a lot of new libertarians, too. I'm not dismissing that, but I'm just saying – We ought to be uh, aiming for even beyond that. For all the people who we can't convert to libertarians, can we at least convert them to prioritize the places where they agree with us in opposition to the very worst things our government is doing? I mean, you could you could make a hardcore right wing conservative born again Christian case for stopping the genocide in Yemen. And you could make a granola bars and peace and love and hippy-dippy argument for the same thing. It's calling this thing off right now, right? Whoever you are is fine to continue believing or being who you always were. Just, and, and even believing the same principles that you always did. Just prioritizing your issues the way that we insist. And so and look at the opportunity that Hornberger has here, right, to say, hey, how come we're not talking about Yemen? Like I'll talk about Yemen and I'll bring this up. And I think this ought to be the most important issue of the campaign, getting troops out of Afghanistan someday. OK, fine. What about calling off American support for this genocide in Yemen yesterday? And, you know, one thing where we can give credit to Bernie Sanders is he led the Senate. In, 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 can you believe it? World historical passing the War of Powers resolution to try to force an end. And this war criminal, Donald Trump, defied it and vetoed it and kept going anyway. Absolutely unforgivable. I'll attack Bernie Sanders tomorrow. But today is the day that the, everyone should be talking about how Sanders is good on Yemen and Trump is the worst, right? And we'll fight about you know Medicaid costs the day after tomorrow, whatever it is. But um, you know, if he goes out there and leads a, a real issue oriented campaign, which again, he's on top of current events, hundred percent, he's on top of all of this stuff anyway. So I think, and just like Ron Paul did, Ron Paul, absolutely, um, you know, fully versed in every bit of the subject matter, not just the principle, but everything that's going on in the USA today. And, and, um, and what, not the newspaper, but in the place and, 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 how people feel about it and and why liberty's the solution to it and i just think i have every confidence that he's just gonna absolutely knock them dead in the general election time and unlike poor ron paul who had to quit at some point he's in there all the way through the end in november and can continue to cause a, a great ruckus um, all the way through the general election. So Given I'm the, really excited about it.
0: Yeah, I am too. I, I'm excited about Jacob. I've talked to him a couple times and I think he'd be great. Um, looking at the election field at it, it's, uh, you know, winnowed down really quickly here over the last week or so. What with, if it's going to be Biden versus Trump, what chance, what chance do you think there is that foreign policy will be discussed in that race? Are, they, oh, well, basic, are mean, they basically the same person as Biden? I, I've read some things that um, lead me to believe Biden was maybe sometimes advised Obama against some things. I don't know if that's true or not. So do you think that they'll try to hit each other on that? Or do you think they'll fall into line on the, the consensus that that the yeah. elite holds? So w- what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, well, it's funny. At first, I thought you said Sanders. And I thought, yeah, they'll definitely have to fight about some of this stuff. But yeah, no, with Biden, I'm not sure what they're going to do. I mean, I think, you know, Trump has succeeded at the very least of making Afghanistan an issue in this election. And I'm far from confident that the peace deal is going to be carried out, you know, by next year and all this, like in the promise. Um, but, uh, you know, is it going to be absolutely, you know, simple white belt you know judo to get joe biden to attack trump for recklessly pulling out of there it's going to be no problem man i think it's already you know happening I mean, and you know i haven't seen this he may have already answered um i don't know but i do know that just a few weeks ago in the new york times um uh, biden answered that he would keep thousands of troops there for counterterrorism mm-hmm. and so um you know and essentially given the same answer as in 2009, which kind of goes to your point there that sometimes he advised Obama on restraint. Well, it's true in 2009 that the secretary of defense and all the generals were pushing for 60,000 more troops and they got them, uh, really you know, more than that. Um, and Biden said, this is crazy, man. We're not going to pacify the Pashtuns. We shouldn't be trying to. We should have a counterterrorism plus mission. The plus being training the Afghan army. we shouldn't be taking responsibility for the Afghan army. We should be training them and then we should be making sure to kill any actual bin Ladenites around. And so, you know, that was wrong. It was just way better than what Petraeus and Gates were proposing, which was the massive surge, which was a total catastrophe and a failure. Um, But now Biden's talking like it's still 2009. And that's what we need to do right now to begin his presidency. That would be the policy that he would adopt and then presumably keep for four or eight years. So um, that's nuts. And if that's his conclusion already, I don't think he's gonna be flexible on that. I don't think he's gonna, I mean, unless his advisors say to him, hey man, we're gonna have to bite the bullet and make sure that we stay to the left of Trump on Afghanistan no matter what, Mm -hmm. because of just math and numbers and politics and stuff. Which I kind of doubt. I doubt any of them are wise enough to figure that out. I already saw, you know, Susan Rice attacked him, attacked Trump in the New York Times for it. And um, I read this liberal website, uh, Politics USA, had this massive piece attacking Trump and lying that he's got a good enough peace deal to leave Afghanistan on, and that look, even Liz Cheney says it's a bad thing to do. And it's just, you know, for real progressives and leftists. And reds out there, they're just cringing as bad as you and me, right? But for a centrist kind of liberal Democrat, that's what Hillary Clinton would say, right? That, look, even Liz Cheney says he's being reckless. And that's the eyeballs they're looking through. That's the only way that they can figure out the the math on the thing. Well, I don't know. If Obama kept us there for eight years, it must have been for a reason, right? So therefore, it's irresponsible for Trump to pull us out. And this is the way they look at it. So, um I mean, in the general election, I think if if it's an issue at all, Trump's going to score massive points off of Biden for that, um, which is funny because, as I say, you know, relatively speaking, Biden was the dove on that back then. But he's just too old and dumb to adjust now. You know what I mean? He's just going to fail on that. Yeah. I know he is. You know, I think on the other hand, I think if Sanders is in there, I think Sanders already said, oh, you want to deal with the Taliban and get out? I absolutely support that. I don't support Trump, but I support Trump's actions here. You're damn right I do and that kind of thing. So I like that kind of deal. And I think that if he you know, uh, was the nominee and won the election, I think he would see the policy through as best he could. Um, I'm not saying that about the rest of the wars. I don't put much faith in him. But if, yeah, if Trump is in the middle of a withdrawal when Sanders takes over, he's not going to cancel it. Right. I think Biden might yeah biden might be like well i talked with the generals and they decided let's keep bagram and stay and fight so yeah and that's what i would definitely predict there
0: yeah uh i think biden if he gets elected would be kind of like woodrow woodrow wilson in his second term that like he's not really making any of the decisions everybody around him is just telling (laughs) telling him uh what to do because i don't think he's all there it's kind of it's actually sad to watch
1: i mean uh, i don't know what's going to happen with that i mean i think um, the narrative of his dementia is taking off kind of in full force now. And so, you know, I think uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, democratic voters are not bright about this stuff. If, if, you know, democratic party headquarters says that everybody knows, despite Al Gore and John Kerry and Hillary Clinton, everybody knows the centrist, most moderate centrist always has the best shot in the general election. And so you just can't vote the winger. It's all about electability, and therefore we say it has to be Biden. That's like a magic spell on them. You tell that to a Democrat, and they just believe it. I mean, they said the same thing about Hillary. Hillary's the most electable one. Well, Hillary's the most hated woman in America. Yep. Hillary is – she's never had a disapproval rating lower than 45 percent since we all met her for the first time back in 1992. Yep. Who says she's the most electable one? Why? Because Bernie's bald? Well, guess what? Obama's black. That's why people like him, is because they're weird and different and from the outside, seemingly. I mean, if Obama's black, then he's not skull and bones, right? Like he must, maybe he cares about me. Maybe he's not one of them so bad that he's going to treat me the way they do. And of course, it wasn't true. Obama's just Hillary. Um, in practice, but that's the reason people voted for him over her, because he was not her. And it's the same reason that people find Bernie Sanders charming, is because what's left of his hair is uncombed, because apparently he just isn't worried about that. He just wants to talk to you about this taxation thing of his, or whatever it is, right. and he's sincere, right? And he doesn't care if he stumbles and stutters, he just, is he's being honest. I'm not saying he's not crazy. I'm just saying he's not a liar. And and so people like that. You know, he's got that that outsider thing. But, you know, Democrats, they just take these marching orders, man. And in fact, especially, you know, and, and I guess you can see the dynamic, right? Since Trump is such the winger, they're saying return to normalcy. But normalcy being the absolutely horrible status quo that Trump was elected in spite of. And. It's, you know, they don't have the right answer at all to appeal to people. So moving further left with Sanders obviously is crazy. But going back to the good old days of the Obama years, you know, that's just not going to sell to the American people at large. It might sell to the Democratic Party. But then again, this the dementia thing. Um, That's what I was going to say. Sorry, that was just a big comma for I don't know. Democrats are stupid. But at the same time. I mean, it's just becoming more and more clear where all the we hold these truths to be self-evident that everybody's uh, created, uh, uh, you know, the rest. He couldn't even come up with created equal. OK, right. like, hey, that's kind of the main number one creed of the whole nation, the whole right. idea here, supposedly the Declaration of Independence. Um, and, you know, I have my brain farts, too, but not so bad as all that and if they were that bad i don't think i could run for president could i and donald trump he may be making a mistake i think trump believes the hype that sanders is the weakest candidate and he'd rather fight sanders and so take out biden now but i don't think that that's really right i think that um for the same reason that trump is in there he should be smart enough to know that You know, Biden is Jeb Bush and Bernie Sanders is Trump. Man, that's the narrative here for sure. And so – but they're already going after Biden hard and Trump was saying that, listen, if this guy gets elected, they're going to have to put him in an old folks' home and just hire a bunch of staffers to come in and run the whole government for – and then he – I love the way he trolls. He goes, you know, I'm I'm really worried about him, (laughs) you know, this kind of thing. I mean that's just – He's saying my battleship. dude. you done yeah. done already toast right yeah. there? You know?
0: Yeah. I think it's going to be really entertaining. And, and I, I don't see how even somebody as stupid as Trump can, can um, mess this up a, at this point, but we'll see. Um,
1: I, I did. Well, wonder- lot can happen, but yeah, as all yeah. everything being equal. Yeah, no, I, he's going to walk all over Joe Biden yeah. with all just the old man jokes and all that stuff. It's yeah. just, it's over.
0: Yep. I wanted to uh, get your take on the recent news from Afghanistan and I wanted to kind of frame it and put it in context, talking about a peace deal with the Taliban in uh, yep. something that I learned in reading your book, the uh, fool's errand, which is over your shoulder there, that, you know, I was kind of uh, not very uh, libertarian on foreign policy after 9-11 and I wasn't really paying close attention. And I had never heard the fact that after nine eleven, but before the American invasion, the Taliban was ready to give up bin Laden. But we didn't, you know, tell us, you know, they wanted a little fig leaf of um, uh, of something so they could satisfy their the Muslim honor thing of not giving up a guest. But they were ready to basically say, we'll send bin Laden across the border to somewhere you can pick him up and so talk about that opportunity and why that wasn't taken. Why, why has, why do people still today think the Taliban and Al Qaeda are the same thing?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the answer to that last part is just because they lied and they, they deliberately used the term so interchangeably to confuse people into thinking it was the Taliban who had attacked us. And then it's funny, you know, it's kind of ironic, I guess, that a lot of people kind of get their start in 9-11 trutherism kind of based on the question that how could a bunch of cavemen been responsible for that? You know, the, the Taliban really are very much the hillbillies of Central Asia there. It doesn't quite seem like that kind of operation. Yeah, well, they didn't do it. So that's the explanation. It wasn't them. It was Al-Qaeda. And these guys all have advanced degrees. So, is a surgeon. Bin Laden had, had an engineering degree. And Mohammed Atta and Ramzi bin al-Shib and those guys, they were studying engineering in Germany when they were recruited to be the pilots in the first place, right? They were no cavemen from uh, Afghan Appalachia. They knew what they were doing. And that, you know, that was obviously the answer there. But you can see why people, it didn't quite make sense. Like, why would these guys attack us anyway? And the last time we heard Rambo was helping protect them from the Soviets and this kind of stuff. Um, but, uh So and then I guess to answer your second to last question next would be the reason that they went to war was because they wanted America to be on a war footing because they wanted to carry the war on to Iraq next. And they needed for something to be ongoing still in the ongoing war on terrorism. Don't you get it wrong. This isn't over yet. We're just getting started now. And we know from the records that um, Donald Rumsfeld particularly was worried that they might kill bin Laden and that then the message you know, might be confused. The American people might think that, well, the war on terrorism is over. We got our revenge, dropped a 500-pound bomb on this guy's head, and now we all feel a lot better about ourselves. And now we can go on with our day. And so Rumsfeld said maybe we should attack right now and get Iraq going right now just in case we kill him at Tora Bora. The American people won't think that it's over because we'll be already on a brand new phase of the thing. And they didn't go with that, but that was their thing at the time. It's pretty clear that they let him go as part of that same theme. And who cares if Saddam Hussein is in conspiracy with Bin Laden when we already killed Bin Laden? And as far as the American people are concerned, our war on terrorism is over. And so. You know, there's that. And I'm sorry, you're going to say.
0: No, that's okay. Do you think they let him go on purpose uh, to Pakistan and all that?
1: It's a circumstantial case in the book, but they got really shoddy excuses essentially for why they did not order the Green Berets to come down from the north. The Rangers from the Bagram Air Base and even General Mattis had Marines down in Kandahar province who presumably could have gotten in helicopters and gotten on over there to seal that border. And they refused to allow them to do it. The Delta force wanted to go to Pakistan in their Chinooks and then get dropped off on the mountaintops and come over from the south um, and south and east there um, in order to corner the al-Qaeda guys there. So they're trying to flee into Pakistan. And ah, surprise, we're already on the other side of the line. And they were refused. In fact, um. am uh, Reading right now, I've I've read parts of this before. I'm now reading Kill Bin Laden by Thomas Greer uh, under the name Dalton Fury was his pseudonym. And he was the Delta Force commander there. And just like in the CIA memoirs about Tora Bora, they say over and over, we just couldn't understand these orders. In fact, I didn't realize this, that they were pulling out Delta Team A right when Team B is getting there. They pulled them all out and the Green Berets that were with them. And the CIA guys that were with them I already knew they had called Gary Burns and the CIA commander out in the middle of the mission, right in the middle of the mission at Tora Bora, They called them out of there, and Greer says in the book, you know, they said that they were doing this as a psyop to fool Bin Laden into thinking that we were pulling out, but then, like, they really did pull out. We could have used those guys, you know. It doesn't doesn't seem to make sense. And yeah, I don't think that that was why they pulled them out was as a PSYOP against Bin Laden. I think that was their excuse. I think they wanted to be able to claim that they had sent enough guys in there to give it a try and launched enough airstrikes to claim that they had given it a shot. But they wanted to... Well, it's not that they wanted to make sure that he got away, because they weren't really in a position to do that. But they refused to commit the forces necessary to seal the border and make sure that they were captured. And... That's according to all the leaders on the American side there. And I think it's pretty clear if you go back and check the record and check their excuses. They go, well, we didn't want to rile up some tribesmen on the Pakistani side of the line. Well, really? I mean, what the hell excuse is that? Why didn't you want to? Because then what were they going to do when the U.S. Delta Force comes through saying, listen, we're hunting for a six and a half foot Arab around here. (laughs) If you've seen him point the way, if you want trouble with us, we have some. But if you want to let us pass, then we'll just pass in peace. Yep. That might have riled them up, huh? And then what? That would have jeopardized the whole regime change in Kabul. Right. But why? They're on the Pakistan side of the line, first of all. And why do I care about regime change in Kabul more than I care about Osama bin Laden getting away? Right. Right? And I think it's pretty clear when you, when you read what the CIA and the Delta guys have to say about their time there that, The way they always phrase it is we just couldn't understand it when the obvious answer is right there in front of you is they wanted – for people who've read the book 1984 or for those who haven't read the book 1984, a big part of the story is – that Emmanuel Goldstein is the enemy. He's Trotsky, the enemy of the revolution, on the run out there, trying to sabotage us and undermine us and kill us and scare us. And he's the reason that we need Big Brother to protect us from the enemy. And it's just – it's the perfect script and it works very well. And it was the ticket into uh, Iraq. Now, back to the first part of your question, which is the offers to negotiate. Bush said no negotiations. Hand him over. And they said, well, listen, if you provide us some evidence that he did it, wait, let me rewind a minute. I don't want to go back too far, but um, they had been trying to negotiate to give him over ever since the embassy bombings in Africa, Dar es Salaam in in Tanzania and Nairobi, Kenya in 1998. And there had been on and off again negotiations and um, the head of the. A CIA effort in Afghanistan in the 80s, Milt Bearden, he was on the record saying that they were negotiating in good faith. They were trying to give this guy up. And he was frustrated at the American side for refusing to listen t- intently. So, for example, the Taliban would say, you know, bin Laden went out falconing and we can't find him. He's been missing for a week. And then the CIA guy's Or the State Department guys would say, Hand him over, we said. And then Milt Bearden is complaining later to the Washington Post that when the Taliban said, We can't find him, what that meant was he is outside of our protection right now. You guys go ahead and do your worst and it won't be our fault. Hint, hint, he went out falconing. And the Americans are going, Hand him over, you dumb towelhead. Yeah, okay, and getting nowhere, right? And then after September 11th, and, and, and look, they really they hated each other. I mean, they had um, just before September 11th, Mullah Omar told Arnaud de Bourgogne, who had, was a, a right wing reporter, friend of the Reagan administration and, and had covered the Afghan war in the 80s. Um, and and he interviewed uh, Mullah Omar and he said, listen, Osama bin Laden is like a chicken bone stuck in my throat. I can neither swallow him nor spit him out. You know, I'm in this unfortunate position, but clearly he was seething with rage. He says, you know, he hasn't gone to to school for 12 years to get the degree that he needs to issue religious edicts. I he's I'm the man. He ain't nothing around here. This kind of thing. And clearly resented. And again, these are kind of the new hillbilly regime that are sort of being squatted upon by this group of Arabs who are actually probably like you know kind of racist against them and and like classist against them look down on them and kind of treat them bad and stuff and meanwhile are getting them into trouble with the american superpower yeah. that they're not even done conquering the whole country yet the taliban they've owned the capital city since bill clinton helped them take it in 96 but they don't even still rule the whole country yet and so they really resent that they've got these foreign radicals now trying to get them in trouble with the americans when they would just assume not so um you know after the after september 11th happened oh and then one more thing about this was the taliban try i knew there was one more thing i was trying to find it in my brain somewhere um their ambassador i don't know if they had i guess they didn't have an ambassador to the united states but they there's their foreign minister was named watakil or wakili or something i'm sorry i was forget how to pronounce it exactly um but He had tried to warn the U.S. and he had sent one of his guys to the U.S. to warn and he couldn't get a meeting and they just essentially turned him away. And then he personally had gone to Pakistan and had warned, I think, tried to pass a warning to the U.S. through the United Nations in Pakistan, something like that. It's in the book. I have the details Um, to warn the Americans. They didn't know the details of September 11th. Talk about Taliban being guilty of it. They warned the Americans, these Al-Qaeda guys in our country, they've got something cooking up against you. And you know how they knew? The the Al-Qaeda hadn't told them. Al-Qaeda was betraying them by doing this, betraying their hospitality by doing this. They found out because of a guy from, I think, Uzbekistan, a jihadi from Uzbekistan, like the word went around the grapevine and came back through the Taliban to the Taliban that way. And they sent their foreign minister to try to warn the Americans that there's an attack coming. And the Americans refused to listen to it. So, of course, they were willing to negotiate to give up bin Laden. They hadn't done the attack. They tried to warn us against the attack. They hated and resented this guy for jeopardizing uh, their position. And then when the thing started, they, you know, talked tough in a couple of places and said, you know, you can't scare us, Bush and whatever. But at the same time. You know, they're they're real communications with America. They said that, yes, if you can provide evidence of bin Laden's guilt, then we'll turn him over to any Muslim country. Now, I don't know what everybody in your audience knows about this, that and the other thing, but that could include then Egypt. Mm-hmm. or jordan or right. turkey or malaysia or any muslim country that is kuwait right. who are extremely close with the united states and would do i would say don't turn him over to saudi he might disappear right. but <laughs> but any other muslim country that's a friend of the usa it would be just checking off a box essentially let the plane land at the airport and then turn around extradite him, and send him straight to virginia and new york for prosecution no problem whatsoever yeah. Um, and the Americans said, no, uh, Bush said, no negotiations. I told you, no negotiations, no evidence. Colin Powell said, well, we're going to produce a white paper demonstrating Al Qaeda's guilt. And it was Al Qaeda and they knew it and they could prove it a thousand ways from Sunday is how they knew the attack was coming. They knew Al Qaeda was going to attack us. Um, and, but then they didn't do that. And, um, and then the Taliban said, okay, listen, uh, if you give us any evidence, then, uh, we'll turn him over to Pakistan. In this case, the Pakistanis said no. We couldn't guarantee his safety. I don't know what that's even supposed to mean. And I suspect the Americans influenced the Pakistanis to reject that. I don't know that that's true. But it is, at least it's said that Musharraf, the dictator of Pakistan at the time, uh, was the one who scotched that effort there. Then the bomb started falling on October the 8th. And on that day, maybe the next day, They said, "Okay, look, forget any evidence. We'll turn him and not just him, bin Laden and his group. We will turn them over to any third country. If you stop the bombing now. So it could have been Canada or Mexico, could have been England or Germany or France, could have been the Italians, could have been our best friends in the world. Just hand them over just the slightest bit of face saving. That they're not handing them directly over to the Americans for execution, but that, hey, you know, apparently he did that thing there, yeah. whatever. And then Bush said, forget it. Too little, too late. That's it. The war is on. And again, because you want to go to Iraq. Right. Right. They couldn't accept a peaceful resolution to the problem. Right. They, they wanted
0: ha- to do Iraq and Iraq and Syria and all the other that that list of Wesley Clark that he saw or whatever. So I want to give you a chance to talk about the book that you're working on and, but I do want a quick comment on your take on the, the current Afghan, uh, peace deal. The one 20 years ago didn't work out, but is this one going to work out? Is it even a really good pullout deal or, I mean, we're still going to, well, we, the government's still going to keep Bagram air base. Where do you see, uh, Afghanistan a year or two from now?
1: Right where it is right now. I hate to say that, man. I'm sorry. And I I don't know what the point of all this effort is in sending Zalmay Khalilzad to strike this bargain. Um, it says they're going to have the troop levels down to 8,600, which is where they were when Trump came into power five months from now. Right? So I guess by the fall, um, they'll have us down to where it was when Trump came in. And then by next May or so, um, they're supposed to have the last of the combat forces out. But there are exceptions there, and there's no real resolution of the CIA and their so-called counterterrorism pursuit team death squads. And um, they're still unresolved, you know, they don't say in any speci- uh, specificity about the fate of the Bagram air base there north of Kabul which the military is just absolutely intent on keeping. And I guess I just don't believe that Trump is willing enough to see the Kabul government fall Mm -hmm. on his watch to really finish pulling out the last of the troops. And, of course, they could never get the um, Taliban to agree to some terms that recognize the current government as legitimate they did agree to talk to them which would be a first before they always said nope they're just illeg- illegitimate sock puppets we won't talk to them at all but they've not agreed to truly seek a peaceful resolution in any meaningful way there's no enforcement on that anyway and both sides have so much to lose by giving in to the other and you know i don't know i, I really think if they were wise and not a bunch of butchers, which they are, that everybody over there should be willing to call time out. Now's really a good time for the Americans to go. The Taliban rule virtually all of Pashtunistan except the provincial capitals, but all the countryside and the small towns in the predominantly Pashtun parts of the country, and not too much more beyond that. They do have influence in other places as well. And there are Pashtun areas up in the north uh, where they have more influence as well. But for the most part, I think truly for the most part, they're geographically separate from each other. And that the territory that the Taliban really rules now is where they're most likely to have the most grassroots support in the first place. And so they ought to be willing to agree upon, you know, autonomy and power sharing and loose federalism and live and let live. Um, But I think, they're not wise, right? They're not going to do that. They're going to fight over the power as much as they can possibly keep or take. And it's going to be a nightmare one way or the other, probably. And so other than a best case scenario in terms of negotiation with the Taliban and the government, which by the way, the government itself is splitting right now. They just held another, you know, completely catastrophic election where the current president and co-president CEO Are both accusing each other of stealing it again, and and you know could be um, you know might actually split the government in half. Um, Abdullah Abdullah, who is Rashid Dostum's guy, um, a Tajik communist, um, you know he's threatened to split the government apart, Um, and uh, so this is who the the Taliban is supposed to be able to negotiate with is this Kabul government that can't even hold itself together at all, even with us still there. And um, and then, so if things are really going bad, I mean, with just the amount of time we're talking about, you know, more than a year, a year and two or three months here on the timeline to withdraw, there's just too many guaranteed. There's going to be, you know, violent events for the Hawks on both sides to exploit in order to scotch the deal and stay. And I don't think Trump has the wherewithal to say, listen, and this is what he should have said as soon as he came in office, he should have said, listen, if the government that Bush and Obama can't stand on its own by now, yeah. after 15 years, then I'm sorry, it's a bankrupt project, it's throwing good money after bad and good lies after dead ones, and we just got to knock this off, we can't do this anymore, and just make it all their fault, which it was, and... And call it off. So, but then to paraphrase Dina Powell, who was his uh, deputy national security advisor, she says, um, uh, well, you know, Trump can't lose a war. If you leave Afghanistan, that's losing a war yeah. and Trump can't lose a war. And I think that essentially having a peace deal like this is the perfect politics. He has to claim that he signed a great peace deal for the election. But then he doesn't have to suffer the consequences of actually abiding by it and being blamed by the hawks for whatever happens bad in Afghanistan after that. As long as we keep all our air power and what have you at Bagram, that's enough to protect Kabul from full scale sacking by the Taliban anyway, you know?
0: Yep. I wanted to, before we go, uh, ask you a couple of questions about uh, the convention coming up. But before we do that, I want to tell people about the book you're working on now and, and plug the other of uh, great books that uh, Libertarian Institute has, has, uh, put out over the last several months.
1: So what's going cool. on now so, and
0: what can they get from you now?
1: Yeah. So back there behind me, there's fool's air and that's my book on Afghanistan. And then also the great Ron Paul, uh, the Scott Horton show interviews, that's 39 interviews of Dr. Paul by me from 2004 through 2019. And including also the transcript of a speech that I gave about how much I love the guy who's in there too. All
0: of which I've and read, then, all of which I've read three times. Oh really? Bump. Well, when I was great, yeah, when I was working on it, uh, uh, the transition. Oh right, right, that,
1: yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I thought you meant just for fun. Of course not. No, no well, you
0: know, it, it is great it, though, isn't it? No, it is. It is really great. Um, it is, yeah. It is. If you haven't, um, it's a good stroll down memory lane as to what the uh, Ron Paul movement was and, and what hopefully we can get going again with uh, with Jacob Hornberger. So
1: yeah, man, yeah. definitely. And then also you see behind me uh, Coming to Palestine by Sheldon Richman, uh, which is a great book about the reality of the Israel-Palestine conflict. And then also somewhere back there, you can see No Quarter, The Ravings of William Norman Grigg, which is his uh, second or maybe third, but I think second to last book. Uh, He died back in 2017, but he was working on this thing and. Uh, Thomas R. Edlam did the editing and got it all together for us, and we published that last year. So the Ron Paul book, Coming to Palestine, and uh, No Quarter all came out last year. You can find out about all four of those books at libertarianinstitute.org slash books. Um, Have all those. And then the one I'm working on, it's – for now, the working title is Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, although I know everybody hates that. So I'll have to figure out something. Um, But So it's Enough Already. And it's about all the wars from 1979 through now, essentially all the Middle East wars and interventions over there and uh, why to knock it off finally. So uh, that's still quite a few months away. I'm, I'm bogged down on writing about these neocons now, (laughs) but I'm getting there.
0: Right. Yeah. I've, I've read parts of it so far and I'm excited about it, but the, the problem is, uh, and people won't be surprised by this. It's what to leave out because you know everything about everything, and you want to put it all in, but you can't. So uh, that's the yep. that's the task that you've got before you. So uh,
1: well, you know that's how Fool's Errand became Fool's Errand. That started out as chapter two of this book, yep. and then I just couldn't finish writing about it till it was a book of its own. So. Right now, I've skipped Afghanistan this time. I don't know how I'm going to treat Afghanistan this time. I, I want to write one tight essay to fill in that space and then go ahead and move on to Iraq now, I guess. But already I'm way bogged down on Iraq. It's stretching out bad. I'm just on why they lied us into it in the first place. I haven't even really told about how they lied us into it yet. I'm just at the part about <laughs> they, why they lied us into it and – uh so anyway, we'll see how it goes, man. But I, I am working. I swear for, for everybody who's donated and supported and helped. I am. Uh, believe me, I am working on it every single day.
0: Yeah, I know you are. It's uh, we're all looking forward to it. Um, uh, oh, one quick thing that I just thought of. What's the just real quick North Korea? What's going on there? Anything at mm-hmm. all or?
1: Uh, No, I don't like it. I mean, the fact is that Donald Trump started off uh, with a, you know, on a pretty good uh, foot here. Well, no, no, he started off terribly threatening them and everything. But then he, he, uh, once the peace deal stuff started, he started off pretty well. But then, you know, essentially let his hawks sabotage it. And so, you know, essentially to sum it up, it's like this. The Bush administration, the Obama administration, and all the hawks, they say, denuclearization first then we'll talk to you about other stuff now here they advanced it forward by saying well okay at least let's talk about well first they said let's just go ahead and open up talks but then essentially they changed it back and they said well we'll only talk about denuclearization and once we've got the denuclearization issue resolved then we can talk about how we're going to fix everything else and that was just never going to fly.
0: That's not going to go they knew anywhere. And it was
1: never going to fly. Yeah, the only way to do it was to say in a grand bargain fashion, and look, Nixon did this with China. It ain't treason. You can do it like this. You make a big, essentially, ice-breaking opening that says, you and me, we're friends now. And then we're going to let our underlings work out the details about the things that we're still Uh, have in dispute. But right now, at least we're no longer enemies. Right now, we recognize you for what you are, and we are no longer threatening you and this and that. And so that's all they had to do with North Korea. If you're going to go ahead and take the step and deal with Kim, the only way to do it would be to say, listen, you disarm your nuclear weapons, or at least tear down your ability to continue to produce any more of them and give us real reason to believe that you scale back your stockpile and your long-range missile capability, and whatever are the absolute musts on the American side, accepting for the sake of argument they're musts. And then in exchange, we give you a security guarantee, and we will promise, uh, and and a real one too, not like you know stabbing the curbs in the back here or there or whatever, but like Kennedy gave to Cuba, we, or Kennedy gave to the Soviets over Cuba. We will never invade Cuba. We promise. Absolutely take that to the bank. Well, we will never invade North Korea. We don't want to fight you. We don't want to attack you. We're just concerned about our nukes. You take care of our nuke concerns. and We can take care of your everything else concerns. Again, just like with Afghanistan, This guy, Trump, whatever you say about him, it's just a fact that he's not a senator. He's not a governor. He's not a party man. None of this is his fault. He's not George Bush's brother. None of this has anything to do with him. So he could just come in and say, listen, this and he would be right to say this is all Bush and Obama's fault. Of course, just like everything in the world is Bush and Obama's fault. But nuts to their stupid policy. You know, Bill Clinton actually was on the right track. Go ahead and deal with him. And and the Republicans sabotaged – and I'm no fan of Bill Clinton for people who are just meeting me for the right. first time here. <laughs> well, I'm just saying he had a deal with the North Koreans. The, the Republicans in Congress would not let him live up to our side of the deal, which was to give him a light water reactor and some fuel oil and some welfare payments and stuff to stay in the MPT. They still stayed in the MPT. It wasn't until Bush Jr. came in and outright abrogated the Clinton deal and announced it was dead, even though they hadn't violated the deal, Um, and then put new sanctions on them and created a whole brand new thing called the Proliferation Security Initiative, which was their claimed right to seize North Korean boats on the high seas. And then they added them to the Nuclear Posture Review that said that we might have to drop an H-bomb on them in a first strike. And it was only then – In December 2002 that the North Koreans announced they were going to leave the NPT in six months, kick the IAEA inspectors out, restart their Soviet-era nuclear reactor, and then about a year after that start harvesting the plutonium out of it to make nuclear weapons. None of that had to happen. George Bush Jr. essentially did all of that for them. He did that to them. He put nukes in their hands and then – Obama refused to do a thing about it. So just sit back as they made more and more and more of them because what he would have looked weak by being brave and strong and doing the right thing. Right. And so instead, he just let the whole thing coast. Donald Trump, all he had to do was say, look, everybody knows George Bush is an idiot and Barack Obama's a wimp. Both of these guys are worthless. That's why I'm here to fix what they caused as their mess. And here's what we're going to do. And he could have told his staff, listen, listen. Everybody who doesn't agree with we're offering a grand bargain here, including a security guarantee in exchange for real promises and verifiable ones about their nuclear weapons, get the hell out. And he didn't do that. And John Bolton came out and said, well, yeah, we're looking for a deal like we got in Libya. Well, in Libya, George Bush got Gaddafi to sign over uh, to sign up and give up all of his nuclear weapons technology, which is really just old junk in warehouses, it wasn't really operational or anything, but still he gave all that up in promise for a security guarantee, and then uh, just five years later, Barack Obama murdered him. Right. And so, um, yeah, that's not a very good way to convince Kim Jong-un that you're trying to make peace with him when that's your model, the Libya model, and Trump later criticized uh, Bolton for that, so it was not helpful at all that he did that. But it was Trump that allowed them to change the policy. So, They ruined the first meeting by not being willing to put denuclearization last, essentially, friendship first. And then at the second meeting, uh, which was the one, I guess, in Hanoi, um, that was the one where um, I think they had banished Bolton to outer Mongolia, literally, (laughs) like just like in the cliché. And sent him to Outer Mongolia, which we better be keeping our eye on that. America messing around in this giant space between China and Russia in a very, you know, resource-rich area and all this stuff. I'm way behind on my American Mongolian policy right now. <laughs> um but um uh, then they went and they had the meeting, but that was the day then that the Democrats had his lawyer testify before Congress. And we're pretending that this is all impeachable and that Trump is in the worst trouble of his life for all this Russia treason and all this crap. That was not true. But they had on top of that a whole narrative then that one – Donald Trump is a damn fool. And Kim Jong-un, the master planner, genius chess player, is going to walk all over him and get all these concessions out of him and get America to give in and roll over while not giving up anything And because we all know how Trump is, the world's worst pushover. Just watch. They're going to announce that he made a deal because of what a weakling he is. They say that all day long. And then on top of that oh yeah sure and he's just trying to distract from the fact that his lawyers testifying before congress right now you know his lawyer wasn't incriminating him and they were the ones who were holding the hearing on the day that he was in hanoi yeah. not the other way around but then so the politics of the moment almost mandated certainly from trump's tv obsessed point of view mandated that he walk away from the table and say that what they offered wasn't good enough, even though it really was. Yeah. And the sticking points could have been worked out, and instead he walked away from the table because he had to look like he wasn't giving in. And then, so where does that leave us now? We don't have any heroes in the administration to say the the best guy we got is this guy Stephen Beegun, I think is how you say his name, gun or Beagan. And he was the one who get, who had given the speech saying that you know we might put denuclearization on the back burner. And take a more reasonable approach here so at least there's that but he's not in charge of this policy anymore at all I don't think I think he's out or Damn. I don't know what what his job is now is he deputy national security advisor but anyway he's not working this case and and I don't know of any other person who's willing to jeopardize their reputation as being the guy who gave the way gave away the store to North Korea which would be the take of the yeah. entire consensus of everyone else you know
0: yeah yeah, it's amazing that they keep pushing the narrative that uh, Kim is like this crazed maniac and acting irrationally, but he's acting very rationally. He's shrewd and savvy and he's evil, but he's acting in a way that won't get him torn apart in the streets like Gaddafi was. So. You're right.
1: Um, yeah, he has his own power factions. He has to balance there between the military and the Communist Party and the other factions in the country.
0: Yep. Um it's about two and a half months from. Austin, the, uh, convention over Memorial day weekend, LNC. Uh, I just mm-hmm. bought my ticket last night, 400 bucks round trip from Dayton to, uh, Austin. I'm looking forward to being Great. there. And I think most people know if they've heard you a few times, um, on different podcasts, you're that's in your backyard, right? You're just a few, uh, just right outside Austin. So you're going to be there. What, what's your involvement going to be and, and give us your pitch for, um, why, our listeners should, uh, if they're on the fence, go ahead and jump in and be there for Jacob and for Josh and everybody else.
1: Yeah. Well, so a few things there. Yes, this is my hometown and, um, I will definitely be there and, um, you know, as far as I understand, depending on whatever else happens, but I think I'll be giving one of the nomination speeches for Hornberger.
0: Oh, great. Um,
1: and, uh, you know, that's my plan. And also, you know, me and and a few other people I'm working with here in Austin, we're going to do everything we can to go to all the precinct meetings. And in Texas, the rules are really tight.
0: You have to go to all these
1: different precinct and county meetings before you go to the state convention in order to be delegates to the national convention. So whether you're in Texas or or whatever state you're in, what you do is you go to lpmesiscaucus.com or search that in case I got it wrong. But you got the LP Mises Caucus. And they have for you on their Facebook page and on the regular website, they should have for you everything you need to know about how to become a delegate in your state to then go to the state convention – to to then um, go to the national convention and represent your state. And we're just trying to do everything we can to get everybody on board for Hornberger to win this thing and unite the Libertarian Party. And that should be the radicals and the pragmatists and all of the different factions – Hornberger should be the libertarian that we all agree on, I believe. And that's the case I'm going to make in my speech on his behalf. And, you know, that's why I convinced him to do this thing in the first place. And I could see why people on the inside of the party might feel like, wow, a bunch of outsiders are kind of foisting this guy on us. He's been gone for 20 years, at least, and all this stuff. And a lot of us are new members to the LP and haven't been active and all that. But then again, look at who's the guy we're foisting on them. It's Bumper Hornberger. He rules. He rules. He's good on everything, and they all know him, as you said, from a long time ago, back when he was great a long time ago. And so all he is is coming home to the Libertarian Party where he has a lot of friends anyway. He has people all over the country who already support him and already like him, fans of the Future Freedom Foundation who read him all the time and this kind of thing. And so it should be, I think, right, this is the opportunity of a lifetime to get the Libertarian movement to join the Libertarian Party and really combine these things together and and really use it as a vehicle to teach libertarianism to the American people, to lead the American people of all different political persuasions, uh, to adopt our policies as their priorities, to be that new moderate middle, to replace the, you know, self-murdered neoliberal consensus of the bushes and the clintons in the post-cold war era here um you know i think we can do that i think now you know they said the libertarian moment was dead because rand paul refused to do the job but so now here's a chance to restart it and to really you know keep the revolution going and certainly it'll be the biggest and best, it's almost impossible that it won't, right? This will be the biggest and best chance that we had to teach people about freedom since 2008 and 12 and the Ron Paul revolutions. And um, there's so much that we all can make out of it. Yep. You know, People who who never meet Horenberger, who never have a chance to discuss a thing with him or donate a dollar to him, can still look at the Ron Paul revolution, can still wage their own grassroots revolution. Yep. With his brand name on it for the campaign, in a presidential election year, and and teach people about freedom. Yep. And it, teach people about peace. We can do it.
0: Yeah. It doesn't matter how many votes we get if we abandon that principle on peace and freedom and and uh, uh, being the radical, at least the radical minarchists, if not if not more than that. Um, has Michael uh, Heist talked to you? Are you going to be at the Take Human Action bash that we're going to have?
1: Yeah, I think I'm speaking at that, too.
0: I thought you were, but I wasn't sure. Um, so, yeah, for, yeah we're going to have another event uh, like they did uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I'm going to let you go. But one last question. If when Jacob gets the nomination after the the president is, presidential nominee is picked, then it's v- vice president. Right. Then they pick the vice, mm-hmm. the delegates. I think I want to start a draft Scott Horton for LP. Oh, no, no, no,
1: no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. That's not my role, man. I'm the. You know what? I I know that there are great guys. I've heard people talk about uh, some real good possibilities there, and I'm perfectly happy to tell everybody what to do and say. But it ain't me. I'm right. not the right guy. Plus, you got a
0: you got this book to write. We can't take you off of that, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, but also, I mean, first of all, Your Honor, just look at him, <laughs> right? I'm not. Again, part of the charm of of Hornberger, like Woods and like Ron Paul, is that they are accomplished professionals with advanced degrees. All of them have advanced degrees and very uh, square and bourgeois lifestyles and all these things, which uh, I'm a bit of a family man myself these days. But right. I'm also a skater scumbag and a a pirate radio kid who dropped out of community college. It's not the same thing. And, uh, and I say bad words all the time and just, people don't like that stuff. So, um, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to, uh, be anybody's foreign policy advisor, including whoever is the vice presidential candidate. I promise that though.
0: Yeah. I was just, I was just teasing you, but I, uh, I, I think a lot of us really enjoy, uh, when you have the spotlight and the microphone and, and can, uh, talk about, that principled libertarian message about the most important issue which is foreign policy so um
1: cool well thanks for that
0: yeah yeah it's great um i want to let you go i'll give you one last chance to plug anything um it's been great having you it's it's time for it's time for me to go have dinner with my wife um but uh, anything else you want to say about libertarian institute
1: yeah just uh libertarian org. I'm director there, antiwar.com. I'm editorial director there. And um, scotthorton.org, that's my show. I've done 5,200 interviews for you. I did eight or ten more today. I don't know, something. So 5,200 interviews for you there at uh, scotthorton.org. I'm on the radio Sunday mornings in Los Angeles, KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. And I wrote the book Fools, Air and Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and The Great Ron Paul, as you can see behind me there. And... Uh, you can read about Fool's Errand at foolserrand.us. Great. I think that's everything, man.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to be guest number four on Decentralized Revolution, and I can state with certainty that I will never catch up with you on uh, 5,000 <laughs> interviews. I don't think I'll live that long, but uh, it's been great having you, and uh look forward to seeing you in Austin in just a few weeks.
1: Great. Thanks, Aaron. All
0: right. And there you have it. It's always great to talk to Scott Horton. Looking forward to seeing him. On Saturday, March 28th, as part of the Mises Pack Money Bomb, he will be on our all-day event uh, in our Facebook group, uh, along with Tom Woods, Dave Smith, Jacob Hornberger, and others. So if you want to be part of that and you're not yet part of the uh, LPMC Facebook group, you need to do that between now and then. And the address for that is facebook.com slash groups lpmc and then the number one so groups slash lpmc one and to make sure you're entered for the rifle drawing the silver rounds the t-shirts go to lpmesascaucus.com and register there and go to lpmesascaucuscom slash donate to become a monthly contributor to Mises Pack thanks to Scott and his team for giving me the time on relatively short notice Thanks to Dave vs. Goliath for the intro and outro music. Also, if you can, please share the podcast, Decentralized Revolution, with your friends. Rate it, subscribe, all that good stuff to help boost us in the rankings so more people can find us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.